0: I'm Tommy Salmons. This is Year Zero. Today I have a guest, Sheldon Richman. He is the executive editor at the libertarianinstitute.org, also co-founder of the Institute.org, and the editor at, or an editor at uh, Center for a Stateless Society. He's also authored uh, several books, the latest of which is called What Social Animals Owe to Each Other. And we discussed that a little bit during this episode. So uh, I hope y'all all go out and get that. It, uh, it's, so far, it's really interesting. I started reading it a couple of days ago, as you will hear. And uh, I, I really hope y'all get into it. So we decided, I decided to have Sheldon on to discuss why libertarians should be talking about laissez-faire as freed markets rather than capitalism so enjoy the podcast okay we are recording i am here with sheldon richmond how's it going sheldon
1: uh, it's going all right under these weird circumstances but i'm not i'm hanging in
0: yeah well, i think that's the best any of us can do I'm 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 lucky. I, like I told you, I'm a truck driver, so I'm lucky. I it really hadn't affected my life any, and my wife works from home, so it really hadn't affected her any. So we're just all like, eh, whatever. Yeah, it's just it. I can't tell you how many times I get turned around at a door and told to go put a mask on because I just totally forget what's going on. <laughs> <So>. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'm just kind of like, oh, okay, yeah. yeah but hey, you got a new book uh coming out. I, I want to talk about that. Um I it's out yeah, on, I do. It's out on Kindle right now, isn't it? Yep. What Social a, Animals Kindle owe to each other. Paper,
1: and, and paperback. Yeah, what Social Animals owe to each other. I'm I'm holding it up for your benefit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's on uh, softback, you know, paperback and Kindle.
0: Okay. Well, I started I I got it on Kindle and I started reading it yesterday actually. So I'm a I'm two chapters into okay. it. And I'm really enjoying it. I, you know, I, I ran into you because of Scott Horton. Obviously, we were on the phone mm-hmm. one time, and I was talking to him about the the fault the fault of of using capitalism as a term. And um, I had run across this idea listening to uh, Pear Byland on on Pete uh, Freeman Beyond the Wall podcast, mm-hmm. and and. Uh, yep. And I was talking to Scott about it. And Scott's like, you sound like a Rich, Richmonian or Richmondonian <laughs> or whatever. And I was like, who are you talking about? And he was like, Sheldon Richman, the co-founder of Libertarian Institute. And I was like, oh, I need to start reading his stuff. And that's how I found the Center for a Stateless Society was going through your stuff. So, yeah, you're, you're yeah, doing good, good work.
1: <laughs> I've been around a while because I've, I've had the time to get around by Biolog- you know by- chronologically i have i have had the time i've been at this oh uh, to round it off let's say 1970 so mm. i've been at it a while
0: <laughs> yeah well in you you make a point um in one of your essays that's in in the book markets not capitalism you make a point yeah. that that it's not just a semantic argument can you walk me through that like you're yeah. thinking on that
1: sure uh, and there's a there's a book, a collection of articles that I've I contributed to that C four SS Center for a Stateless Society put out called Markets Not Capitalism because we really wanted to hit that head on.
0: Is that the that's the book with Gary Chartier and uh, Johnson? Yeah,
1: Roderick Yeah, yeah. Roderick Johnson, Long. Roderick Long. Yes. Kevin Carson. Yeah. The, and then it also has some classic essays from long dead people.
0: Proudhon is in there. Uh, Benjamin Tucker. Yeah. Yes.
1: There's a whole, there's a hit because we, you know, we want to trace history. We have roots. So we, we go back, but you can find uh, certainly a phase of Rothbard and uh, Roy Childs. These are names that may or may not be familiar. Carl Hess uh, th- that we think have that f- sort of left libertarian flavor. That's the term we use. So, so the, the semantic point is that well it the name is so the word is so uh, freighted with all kinds of weights and baggage that everybody reads into it what they want so it's not a terribly useful thing I mean here you hear libertarians praising capitalism and you and uh, you you know you have people on the left who don't like it and a lot of people actually on the right don't like it either they think it's uh that all that means is markets are all that matter, and you know people only care about uh, material things. And uh, the uh, but historically, what is known as capitalism and what people think have in mind, many people have in mind what what was, what was in England and then the United States at the beginning in uh, oh you know the 18th century and then certainly in the 19th century and, and much of the 20th century they regard that as being capitalism. Now, those were eras where the market was an important factor in in, in life, post-feudalism, right, post uh, the Middle Ages, uh, into, in the beginning in uh, modernity. Uh, but it's a mistake to think that that was anything like laissez-faire. Mm separation of economy and state, where people were left to co- cooperate and compete without government in any way putting its thumb on the scale for anybody. And yet you can't find a, an era where that was actually the case. And and so um, we who who support the free market, we who consider ourselves, you know, radicals, radical advocates of the free market, and, and classical liberalism, Generally, liberty, today we call libertarianism. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't want to associate with those that with that era, that broad era of the of the West, uh, and so we felt it's better. And we have again, we had predecessors who took this position that the word capitalism just doesn't capture what it is we want to capture. First of all, it does sound like capitalist privilege. We're picking out capital for the name and then putting an ism on the end so aesthetically i don't find it an attractive word right uh because it, it and since a lot of awful lot of people already associate it with privilege for owners of capital which mm-hmm. means to the detriment of workers and uh and anybody else um uh, we just thought it was important to revive this distinction and um and separate ourselves from that word. I mean, we can find that there's an early English, again, 19th century uh, radical liberal, I'd call him, Thomas Hodgkin, who was one of the first people to use capitalist in a pejorative way, even though he's fully free market. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's there's precedent for this. I mean, people have the impression that Marx was the first person to use uh, capitalism or, or capitalist. But in fact, he's not. And the, the, there were, four, you know, there, uh, radical free market advocates have used it in, in the negative way that we're using it, where there was a privileged class that had ties to, to the, the state who got benefits that, that you couldn't achieve in the, in the, in the marketplace. So that's, that's part of what we have in mind in, separ- in separating those two words, yeah. free market from the yeah
0: right and it was it was my discovery of um an agorist primer said samuel edward conkin the 3rd um when whenever i discovered that it wasn't marx that coined that term that it was you know thomas hodgkin was using it you know well before marx and it what now it wasn't until the 20th century in into the industrial revolution that the term capitalism began Getting used as Ayn Rand or or Mises had used it. Is, am I correct on that?
1: That's that's right. It wasn't the ter- the preferred term until we get into uh, the forties and fifties. Okay. Or we we Mises, who I love, and Rand, who in many respects I like, although I think there are lots of shortcomings. But uh, they they embraced the word exactly why they they did. I'm not sure whether they heard it from other people and thought, OK, this is, this is, what, this is our term. This is the term we mean. And you know, I certainly earlier in, in my early days of it, uh, being an advocate here, I, uh, I used it also. So it's, you know, it's kind of a later development in the last 10 years or so that the people brought it to my attention. And the group of us that regard around C4SS who regard ourselves as left libertarians began to see that that word, it's not helpful. A lot of people attach good things to it and mean laissez-faire. I mean, Rand Randall often uh, modified it by saying laissez-faire capitalism. Right. But at the same time, people who like capitalism will readily use, in a pejorative sense, state capitalism or political capitalism. And so it's a slippery word if you can totally change the meaning just by sticking another you know, a modifier in front of it. Right. state capitalism and laissez-faire capitalism are not the same thing so mm-hmm. there's a danger in using a common term right
0: yeah well anytime and this is one of the things that i've i've kind of run into and i just i've just turned to calling myself a straight anarchist is i guess that's the influence of volturine declare when i read her essay on panarchy i was like oh okay because I I always, you know, I'm always trying to get convey the message that the reason that things become isms, whether it's capitalism or socialism or communism, is because of the existence of the state. That the state, you know, uh, forcing these systems down our throat are what constitutes an ism. And in that... We have to get away from the the common state terms. Now, I tend to make the argument to libertarians to not use the term capitalism out of a semantic argument. I'm like, look, man, if, if you talk to the average person today, what we have in America is capitalism. That's what this is. And most people are not satisfied with the government restricting and regulating and dictating how this, how this comes about. So it just, seem, it seems like a useless term when you're trying to promote freedom in a free market.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah. that, that's always kind of the angle I would always take.
1: Right. And I'm trying to a very wide audience, not just talk to libertarians or people right. that are already uh, friendly to markets. And, and if that word is a turnoff, uh, <coughs> then that's a problem. That's a problem. Right. So I try to I talk in terms of, 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 of what I think is, a, you know, uh, are better descriptive uh, terms. And, uh, you know, another weird thing about the word capitalism is that it yields the word capitalist But a capitalist, you know, when you say socialist, you mean somebody who advocates socialism. It doesn't really tell you what that person does. Take the word capitalist. Is that somebody who's an advocate of capitalism, or is that someone who, you know, owns capital and invests it and produces goods for the market? I mean, that's also what we call a capitalist, right? He's not not an employee, so he's not getting wages. He makes his living by getting... uh, you know, profits, entrepreneurial profits, right? Uh, and so it's used in both ways, and that so that introduces an ambiguity. It's, you know, you a person could be a capitalist in the sense of his activity, but not be a capitalist in the sense of his belief. Right, you may feel my dream is so you know state socialism, but I have to live today, so I'm, I make my living by producing goods mm-hmm. and selling them the market. I got to live, so I can't live as a as if we were in a socialist world, so you could hear. There's a socialist capitalist in a sense, or a capitalist socialist. Right. So it does it does help confuse things? Yeah, no, absolutely, that's my, that's because but oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. No. No. What, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Is because a capitalist is actually actively participating in in capitalism, whereas a socialist yeah. just has an idea uh, in a lot of in a lot of ways. So it, it's it's yeah. the the activity of and and this is where that whole term exploiting comes in into play, because they the what the capitalists do is they leverage their political clout in order for beneficial you know ends in in, in their particular market. So we we're not even we're not even close to advocating that. We're advocating, as Charles Johnson pointed out, the best way to say it, freed markets because it's a it's a market it's yeah. never been free before we're trying to actually yeah. actively do something that has never been done and one of the things you point out and it got me thinking um it, it was it was in the first chapter of uh, your new book and you're talking about cooperation yeah. and you're talking about how the markets a freed right. market would bring about cooperation and i have friends that are syndicalists and I mean, we disagree on all kinds of things, but we agree on a lot of things as well. And one of the things I have trouble like conveying to them and getting a, getting my point across with them is that the freed market would actually, it, it would benefit, it would, it would incentivize cooperation and not, it, it, through the through competitive means you would you would begin to cooperate with each other in order to get ahead yeah. and i loved how you covered that can you can you explain that a little
1: bit to us well that's a theme throughout the book that comes up in many of the chapters by the way it's a, there are a lot of chapters uh, and uh, but the chapters are relatively short so yeah. and people can jump around you don't really need to read it in order it's a collection right. of essays but they're but they're you know the longest essay may be 2,000 words, so I don't have very, very long chapters, which is why there could be so many in a book that's not that thick, right. you know, it's under 300 pages. Uh, but, that, but that's a theme <coughs> that goes throughout the book, and it's a very important one, so I'm glad you're bringing it up so early. Uh, markets are cooperation. By the way, one thing I wanna say is, you know, not everybody who would be described as a capitalist, in other words, an owner of capital, uh, is somebody who's looking for favors from government. So you can be, you can Truth. you can own capital, which technically makes you a capitalist, right? <clears throat> and also be against. Just like you could be a socialist capitalist, you could be a free market capitalist. Right. Uh, capital, all capital is, is is the money asset, right? That a that a, that an enterpriser uh, possesses, which he's going to then use. And you know, he might have he might have uh, accumulated it in a, in a totally honorable. Perfectly moral way through trade, and, and saved his money. That's that's his capital, which he's then going to use. It's an asset of it's like a, it's, a, it's an asset of production, right? He's going to put it into his enterprise in order to produce goods that consumers then will be free to accept or reject, depending on if they like the terms and if they find use in the good. So that's all capital is. Capitalism is the money, and it's a it's like having machines, right, or tools. It's it's a tool. Yeah. It's then used to, I mean, you, you, it's an infusion. It, it's access, it gives you access to resources, which then you can convert into useful goods for people. So it's a neutral term, the word capital. There's nothing wrong. In a free market, there is capital, mm. and that's fine. And, and since it's money, and this is kind of a Mises point, a little bit of Mises point, uh, since, since you can convert all kinds of assets into money terms, you can then do economic calculation, which is very important. Right. For people planning their activities, and also for consumers judging products, prices are you know convey very important information about scarcity. So prices, money prices, you, you can't get prices without money. This has always been the flaw in central planning, right? If you abolish the market, which is what Marx wanted to do, abolish money and markets, and find some other way to allocate goods, you're flying blind. The planner doesn't have the information. He, he would need to intelligently plan, even if he has the best intentions. He wants to bring right. prosperity to his population. He's not just a selfish power seeker. He really does want to improve the material position of his, of, of his society. Uh, he won't be able to do it because he won't have prices with which to calculate. This was Mises' great 1920, here we are 100 years uh, out, uh, contribution to show that central planning, whether you're going to call it communism or socialism or fascism, For that matter, can't work. Just cannot work because the planner can't have the information that only the market can generate. How does it generate that? If if people own their own stuff and trade, you get and and money will of course will emerge from that because money is more convenient than barter. Then you're going to get money prices, and with money prices, you can do accounting. You can figure out this strategy is a better strategy than this strategy because you have you can convert everything to a single money unit. So that's. That's uh, one approach. Hmm. Uh, the point about competition and, and cooperation is extremely important, and again, it dominates this book. Uh, everybody has a good, cozy feeling about competition, right The left loves competition, the status left loves competition, and they have an aesthetic. I think a lot of the revulsion against markets is aesthetic, and I took, discussed this in one particular chapter of the, of, the, of the book. Uh, So it's not so much theoretical or moral or economic, but some people just have an aesthetic aversion to competition, right? They say, no, what do we need? You know, they, they, you know, they'll, they'll say they will put dog eat dog in front of it, right? Dog eat dog competition. Uh, And they see, so what's the alternative? They'll say, well, cooperation is the alternative. So I'm trying to smash that and show that these are two sides of the same coin. These are not opposites Mm -hmm. because you get, when you have freedom to cooperate with whomever you believe is going to you know, be the pers- best person for you, for you to cooperate with, there's going to be competition. right? I walk into a shopping mall, and need shoes. I need a pair of shoes. I walk into a mall, and there's two or three shoe stores. Those three shoe stores are competing with each other, no doubt about it. But what are they competing to do? They're competing to cooperate with me. And right. I have a free choice, which of the three I'm, or I can even go to another mall, of course, but let's right. keep it simple. So they're competing to be the one I cooperate with. So they're offering what they you know, sales or better products or lower prices or whatever they can do to say, me, me, cooperate with me. So cooperation and competition are not opponents. They don't clash. If people are free, they're going to want to cooperate. And if they're free to choose with whom they're going to cooperate, then you're going to get cooperation. They're going to get competition. There's nothing nasty about it. What what turns nasty is when people turn to the state to, to quash their competition, to limit their their competition so that you know they're the only one or one of uh, only a few. That's and that hurts consumers. That hurts the people out there looking to cooperate because their their choice is now limited by the anti-competitive actions of government. And just about everything the government does, whether it's intended or not, and so often it is intended, is designed to limit or eliminate uh, competition. But if you can't do that with also limiting cooperation, they go together. That's a big theme of my book.
0: Yeah, well, and and one of the things I always try to bring up is that when competition incentivizes people uh to to act in a more honest way it's because if if you see that that the people that let's just say uh, my grocery store down the street they're being dishonest and they're charging exorbitantly high prices for green beans then i'm going to go 10 minutes Mm -hmm. further down the road to the walmart and i'm going to buy green beans there you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that, that yeah. The fact that there's a, compet- a competitive market where they could lose your business, you know, forces them to be more um, honest about the way that they do business. And so the, yeah. you can't overstate how the competition incentivizes the honest interactions in the market.
1: Right. Competitors keep keep uh, potential cooperators honest. Right. That's, that's, again, when there's no privilege and by privilege, I'm using state favors that either hamper or totally eliminate competitors. So you're right. So we're, we're ruling that out. We're ruling out going to the state to get limits on your competitors or to even bar them from the marketplace, which some, you know, occupational licensing, I could go through a whole list of ways yeah. the state limits competition on behalf of some favored group or individual. So what you said is absolutely right. Competitors keep keep cooperators honest because they have an interest in pointing out that that this other competitor, uh, this, this other potential uh, cooperator is selling a shoddy good or selling it for more than it you know way above cost it doesn't need to be you don't need to charge that much because he he then offers a lower price uh and that that forces that forces i don't mean by physical force but there's a sense in which it forces prices down toward the costs of producing that thing right i have a chapter on that on that on that very point about the cost of production and how what cooperation does to force co- prices down toward their cost of production yeah which means it's and another thing this means see i think people have a an aesthetic aversion to the idea of profits so a lot a lot of people you know, here what's the famous phrase that the left likes to use so state is left people before profits but that's absurd that's ridiculous because in a market again without privilege mm-hmm. the way you make profits is by offering people good deals that they, you know, in a way, can't resist. They, want, they like what you're selling. They need the thing, or they find it useful. And you're offering the most attractive terms. So if, if that price that they're willing to pay in the market is higher than all of your expenses, then you've made entrep- an entrepreneurial profit. It's a, in fact, in a, in a truly free market, profit is a signal that you are serving consumers well. Yeah, they, and they, high they, profits means you're doing it very well. But on the other hand, if you have high profits, high profits are also an invitation to competition. So we have to remember that. Mm-hmm. And profits can be fleeting. Entrepreneurial profit can be fleeting because as soon as other people learn what you're doing, they will then compete with you, and that will then shrink, shrink the profits. So you don't get right. permanent profits without government privileges. Right. But otherwise, profits are a signal that you are serving consumers well. In other words, you're serving your fellow man, right? Your fellow person, uh, something the status left doesn't understand, right? They think your profits mean you're screwing people, yeah. but that's, that's just that's just wrong. Because uh, th- they're not separating privilege from the free market, that's Re- the key.
0: Right, well, and I had even heard Chomsky uh, make the comment that without the state, there would be no such thing as a corporation, that the state makes corporations possible. I mean and he'll even admit that, and I'm like, well, why can't we get you just a little bit further? you know just a yeah. little bit further why, let's 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 get your economics fixed now <laughs> but but yeah. uh, so and that that's what that's one of the really hard points to make with my left friends that are syndicalists yeah. is look man, if the state didn't exist, amazon wouldn't have control of the market in in the way it does that there would be there there wouldn't be all these arbitrary measures that you have to um uh, bypass that the state puts in your way and there would be smaller companies coming up, trying to compete with Amazon, because there's money in that market. There's money there. Everybody sees that there's money there. I would love the opportunity to compete with with an Amazon or a Walmart. But in order to enter that field, it would cost me, you know, millions of dollars because of all the arbitrary, yeah. you know, barriers that are put up on on entry into these markets. And so, the state actually creates the 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 atmosphere, the environment for the you know possibility of monopolies and for corporations to exist and be able to exploit workers. Because nobody can explain to me, yeah, or 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 argue the fact that Walmart can afford to pay all these fees and fines and barriers into entry, whereas Joe Bob's you know, shop down the street, they, just, they, they can't afford to enter that market. They can't afford to, to compete with somebody of that size because they don't have the capital up front to pay for it. And so freeing these markets, getting the intervention of the government out of our way to be able to compete openly and honestly with each other would completely change the spectrum.
1: Yeah. Let me uh, introduce a couple of caveats. First on Chomsky. It's funny because there's almost a schizophrenia there, right? Because one day Chomsky could say, well, big business would never want laissez faire. Well, that sounds like he ought to be for laissez faire then, right? He doesn't like big business. Right. Uh, But that's not the position he takes. He says they also, so in other words, they love all of the subsidies and the privileges and help they get from the state and they get to manipulate the state, which is Mm -hmm. largely true. Uh, certainly, in a lot of ways, uh, but on the other hand, he yeah. On the other hand, he doesn't see laissez-faire as therefore being good for people, good for just regular people who want to prosper and not be under any thumb of any uh, you know powerful person. He doesn't realize that. Uh, he, I mean, he seems to realize that the uh, corporate power is a derivative of government power. I call it the most dangerous derivative. because mm-hmm people don't like derivatives, right, because of the financial world and all that stuff. Right. And if you remember the 2008 collapse, right, everybody was talking about derivatives based on mortgages, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that's when I dubbed the uh, corporate power as the most dangerous derivative. You don't, what they mean by corporate power but in, in a bad sense, you don't get without government power. So mm-hmm. one day he seems to know that, and then he kind of forgets it and and says, uh, you know, laissez-faire wouldn't be good for people. Uh you may. I don't want to rule out the possibility that in a truly free market, you could get something that looks like a corporation with with stock shares and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, I I I, it's, it, I just don't want to rule out the possibility. It would It would not look ex- like corporations today. Uh, as far as uh, cost to entry, it's certainly uh, you know it's certainly possible that in a free market, a company that was highly successful. Uh, was making lots of money and, and maybe it is the kind of uh, an auto you know an auto firm or something where there is a big upfront uh, cost. that may well be true. Right. but that doesn't mean that the enterprise itself has done anything wrong. it just may be the nature of that particular business so it's certainly true in our in our time in the and the internet and open source software and the machine tools which are now, computer, sort of computer design, the price of that stuff has come so far down. I mean, publishing, look at software for publishing and, um, you know, and self-publishing and uh, print on demand and stuff like that. The, 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 the entry barrier just from simply economic costs for a lot of fields, a lot of kinds of work have, has, has plummeted, which means it's more open to people than ever before. that's the result of technology so just because a company has gotten big a company can get big because it's it may just be it had an early the entrepreneur might have realized people are going to want something before anybody realized it, including the people themselves we don't always know what we want until we see it in the marketplace i mean how we know we know that's true so what the market rewards what we reward really when i say the market we're the market right market's not some separate thing that rewards people we end up rewarding that ingenious entrepreneur who hits on an idea long before anybody else. And maybe he's in the field kind of by himself for a while, quote, he's a monopoly, only in the sense that he's a single seller. Not that he's got any favors, but he's, he's the only one for a while because, he's, because this person was so, you know, alert to what people might Correct. want. And he brought up resources that were undervalued because no one had this idea of how to use them yet turns it into this thing that's really a hit with people, wow, I never even knew I wanted that, but I really like that, and it, I like the price, and I'm going to buy it, and lots of other people go out and buy it, that person's going to make a lot of money. Yeah. And so if it's, if it's, if it's a high-cost entry because you need a lot of heavy machinery, let's say, you know, that's going to be some barrier to, to new competitors, but not old new competitors, because there are other people out there who have capital Made made, maybe that they made in other fields will say you know what I think I'm going to try my hand at this other thing that you know that guy's given me an idea to do and Mm -hmm. as long as there's no barriers to that then that that monopoly status won't last and if he tries to take advantage of his monopoly status he's just going to be inviting new competitors right right high profits are an invitation to new competitors
0: yeah absolutely high
1: profits don't Mm -hmm. bar people high profits do not bar entry to a right. field. It's an invitation. It's like standing on the roof saying, Hey, yeah. Uh, hey, everybody, this is the place to be. Look at the profits I'm making. You <laughs> yeah. want to keep people out of your, your industry, keep your profits any- very low. <laughs> <laughs> make them very low. Then some people say, why well, do I don't want to go there? Profits are low. I'll go right. somewhere else where profits are higher. Right. That's counterintuitive. Something, something the anti-market left or anybody, there's anti-market right people too. Uh, they don't get that. Mm. The best barrier to entry is to keep your profits, you know, as low as possible. That then people will say, "I'll invest otherwise." What we other places? Why do we want to invest there? Right. No. You, yeah. You're. So you got to think. Right. You got to think two and three steps ahead. People only look at the one immediate effect of something. This right. is, Henry Hazlitt wrote a book which influenced many libertarians my age. I don't, I don't know how many people read it these days. Henry Hazlitt wrote, and he was kind of a Mises disciple, economic journalist in his own right. He wrote a book called Economics in One Lesson, which he, and the one lesson he derived from Bastiat, Frederick Bastiat, who was this great 19th century, early 19th century free market guy, France. Uh, And the point was there, you got to look beyond the first effects of something. You always have to look for the secondary, tertiary, and beyond, because you you can't only look at the immediate effect, you're going to miss a whole bunch of things. And, and that's very important.
0: Right? Yeah. I, I really I feel what you're saying. <clears throat> I think what I'm what I was trying to what I was trying to draw the picture of is the um, well. I mean, if you look at what happened with with uh, Airbnb or or Uber when they first came out, the hotel industry attacked Air, uh, Airbnb, and their entire thing was, well, these people should have to follow the same regulations we follow. It's not. Well, you should lift these regulations off of our yeah. our shoulders. You should un- <laughs> unburden us with these regulations. No, 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 no. Make them. They're competing with us, so make them follow the same regulations. And that's that's what I'm that's what I'm getting at. That that yeah. the those regulations that 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 regulatory burden that is put on the the, the mom and pop. I mean, how many? How many? people would, would be able to enter into new areas of competition if there weren't these regulatory burdens put on them. I I mean, we look at just like we, I mean, the thing's been going around for years now about hairdressers having to pay $30,000 to, to get a license from the government. Like why? What, what, what is, what does that do? If they screw my hair up, we
1: we know, we know the answer. The the incumbent the incumbent practitioners don't want new competition. Exactly, that's true of doctors. The doctors did it. The everybody does it. The lawyers did it. And look, you mentioned uh, Airbnb. Uh, you also mentioned Uber, and so the story is the same with Uber. When Uber came along, and, and Lyft got into it fairly soon, so even Uber had competition at that level. But all the monopoly taxi companies. That were licensed by their towns and cities tried to stop Uber yeah. and Lyft, and uh, you know Uber and Lyft. Those while those drivers are subcontractors, they're not employees in California. You know they passed a law to treat them as employees. Even though they don't want to be employees, and their employer doesn't want to be, but and 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 the company doesn't want them regarded as employees. But uh, there still is a company there, right? Uber and Lyft. What we don't haven't seen yet, and it'd be interesting to search for the barriers to this, or or why aren't uh, these drivers just doing peer-to-peer, right? Without there being Uber or Lyft, right. why aren't the right. drivers just all linked in by their app and 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 stuff like that? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I've seen the question raised, and but I haven't seen anybody yet study that. Some grad student ought to do a dissertation on. It. Why we haven't seen that yet? What kind of barriers might there be to
0: that? Well, and I kind of uh, imagine, you know, uh, I I wrote an article actually that uh, that was published at the Libertarian Institute about that type of um, a peer-to-peer, you know, uh, organization or or website or app, you know, for for uh, security agencies to to compete with the police. You know, because I'm yeah. like, if you want to, if you want to end the problems that, that we see with policing, what you need to do is you need to open the market up. You need more competition. Yeah. You need people that can be fired by the people that they're sworn to serve and protect, you know, quote unquote. Yeah. And, and, yeah, yeah. and so we could easily envision a situation in which these are the ways that we're using technology to move freedom forward and, and to discover more of a free to market, you know, and uh, yep. you know, do things from more of an uh, agorist kind of point of view, a kind of perspective where you're working outside the scope and the boundaries of the government and their reach. And so I think that is, is, sure. Extremely important for libertarians to talk about that, you know, more ever, more today than ever, because we have the opportunities to create these kinds of platforms that, that are available for the average person to engage in.
1: Yeah, and if this is a good point, uh, good time to bring up. Uh, as long as we're talking about barriers to entry and barriers to competition, we have to talk about intellectual property, which is very important. Right. And I don't believe it's widely understood, even by some libertarians, mm-hmm. about how that is how that limits and outlaws competition. Because what what a what a, what a patent does is basically outlaw imitation. But imitation is extremely important. Bastiat was a, was a huge advocate of imitation, and while he didn't talk directly about the uh, patents or copyrights, it's clear what he was getting at that if others can't copy, then you're lim- by law, then you're, you're limiting competition. Now, that doesn't mean right. that a company, whatever is making, might keep some secrets to it, you know, trade secrets. In other words, not use the government, but just try to keep things close to the, the chest. They're, they're welcome mm-hmm. to try to do that. But as Bastia pointed out, that kind of information gets out. It just gets out. First of all, you can look at a product and maybe reverse engineer or figure out what the person's doing. So it's not only important because people then can compete with the first producer, let's say, by imitating. But a very important point is that by imitating, there's almost like a Darwinian process here. By imitating and, uh, let's say, copying an idea, that idea is going to change in the copying. I mean, we've all experienced this. We're trying to do something someone else did. And we hit on some innovation we didn't even expect. It could be on very some some, some small thing. Right? You, you're trying to do you like you, you observe what someone's doing. I'm not talking about an economic problem, just in your own life. You want you like what someone is doing, and you you then say, Hey, I'm gonna do that too. But in the in the very copying of it, there's there you get sort of a Darwinian mutation, right? You may you by mistake or just by stumbling on it by serendipity. You've made some, you make some change and you say, hey, what? you know what, I like that better than the original. Right. That's how ideas advance. Uh, Matt Ridley, who's, who's a, a very good imp- and important writer, science writer, but also writer about how progress is made and, uh, and, and he has a book called The Evolution of All Things where he's talking about evolution outside the biological area, societies evolve. Mm-hmm. He points out that the way he puts it in a particularly colorful way, I, he says ideas have sex. Right? Two ideas, when they collide or meet, you get a, you get a third idea mm-hmm. as a result of the combination. So, you know, two, two innovators who are at a conference together or just talking with each other, uh, a, a new idea can, can come out of that. And that's what, that's what you get from the, the, the mixing of ideas. And so it's similar to what I'm saying about this evolutionary uh, idea. It's kind of a positive mutation. And then in a, in a way, a natural selection, right? I, right? I I like what you're making and I'm going to, I want to get into that field. So, okay, I'm going to make that too. And then I discover, Hey, wait a second. I just, I came up with an, a little uh, twist on it that makes it even better. And I go in the marketplace and guess what? People like my twist more than they like your original. Now I'm the one doing right. well. So that's what I mean by natural selection, right? The, the consumers say, Hey, we, we, you know, there's the, there's there's always some benefit to being the first to market with something you know some new idea that no one has ever produced before there's definitely advantages to be the first, but there's also advantages to being the second and and the third because you can make improvements over the first you know because it's not likely that somebody's going to think of everything, no one person kind of thinks of everything right. even in a narrow field or you know we're just we're just not cut out that way you know i don't know how how familiar you are with the early days of personal computing. But the first kind of portable, it was really luggable, but the first portable computer was the Osborne, right? It looked like a a sewing machine. It was a big thing. It was heavy. It was like 50 pounds or more. But unlike a big desktop IBM, you, uh, you could carry it around on a handle, and you took the lid off, and that was the keyboard, and that exposed a little screen. And people went gaga about this. Great. This was a breakthrough in 1980 or whatever the year was. But it had its own limits. It was a five inch screen. It, you know, it wasn't, that's a pretty small screen. And then mm. the, the K Pro company comes along and improves on it. They they have a bigger screen, better resolution. It's still pretty luggable. It's not the easiest thing to carry around. It's like a sewing machine, you know, 55 pounds or so. Right. But they, there's a definite advantage of being second because let the first guy, you know, be the pioneer and the market will show his errors. And then maybe you can jump in and, and be the second. And so there, you don't have to be the first to make big profits. Well, I mean, did very well for a long time.
0: Yeah, this is this is you can find this everywhere in history. Um, Henry Henry Ford is often considered the inventor of the automobile, but he didn't invent the automobile. He came up with the assembly line. Now, I mean, that's yeah, yeah. you know, that's what his big, you know, trade off. It was right. was to the industry. And so it was the invention of the assembly line that made the automobile more affordable for your every, you know, every man, you know, average yep. ordinary guys. And the and the competition yep. entering the market actually brings the prices down so that other people can yep. start to afford, you know, your your middle class and lower class citizens can begin to buy cars and things of that nature because because right, that, right. that competition and created a cooperation between the companies and the citizenry, you know, through the the dropping of prices, and so right
1: things don't remain luxuries for long if you have a good amount of freedom. So imagine if you have complete freedom without the government uh, involvement. Well, uh, and that 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 would speed it up the process up even more. I mean, why didn't the car remain the thing? Why isn't today cars only available to the wealthiest people or so electricity? Expensive. Uh, you, right. Luxuries quickly become necessities that everybody has and no one could live without. Right. <laughs> and yet, oh, the ballpoint pen, when it first came out, <laughs> in, I don't know what year it was like, I don't know, nineteen twenty bucks, when 19 and 20, dollars $20 was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It didn't last, but it didn't last. And, we, and right. we've, we've lived that, or we've lived that, at least I've lived through that. The first pocket calculator was very expensive yeah now they were then they were given away before the smartphone they were given away as for advertising you know you'd stamp on the back your company and i have some that were just given away they were fine now who buys a calculator so right. you already have it in your phone
0: yeah well and i remember
1: along with your camera along with your camera and video camera and you know so that's the way it goes and that's even happening with all the with all the government intervention, all the government obstacles, imagine if those obstacles were not
0: there. Well, and here is, and this is just, this is just kind of like how much things have changed. I can remember, I mean, I'm 40, I'll be 41 in in about a month. So I remember in the nineties going through high school and, you're you're going you're in calculus. You know, I took calculus and trigonometry. I really liked math. And I remember the mm-hmm. the teachers saying, No, I want you to show us your work. Show the show your work. <laughs> you're not always going to have a calculator on you. It, little did they know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they got that wrong. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean it's just it's this things just have advanced so far and just continue to move and move and move. That.
1: And That's the way it goes. I mean, look, the price of food, again, and, and I'll keep saying it'll get monotonous, even in our highly uh, uh, burdened economy with, with government privilege, mm-hmm. the price of food has plummeted, even though the population of the world is, at, you know, the highest it's ever been. But food uh, is, is a, a lower part, a smaller part of the uh, average person's budget. Uh, in the United States and mo- most of the world, uh, you know, than ever before. Uh, so we have a larger population, yet we're growing so much food that the, the, the price is, is, is low and it's a smaller part of people's uh, cost of living. Uh, that's the way markets work. And luckily, you know, our markets haven't been abolished. They're heavily burdened. And, uh, of course, what we're trying to do is get those burdens lifted. Right. You know, that's just a preview of what we would see in, yeah. in, a, in a really, in a, in a freed market to use that. That's a great term. And that was actually coined, I think, by William Gillis of C4SS. But,
0: oh, was it Gillis? Uh, the, uh, I thought I think it was
1: Johnson. Johnson's used it, but I think Gillis actually was the first to put uh, oh, okay. it that way, which means, okay. the, which means the, the, freedom, the freeing lies ahead.
2: Right. It's not something it hasn't happen happened. In the
1: 19th yet. century, the 20th century. Yeah, it's still ahead. Right. You no, know, but we still are market oriented and we're getting benefit we're getting benefits of markets we're not getting as right. much as we can and not all segments of society are getting as much as we would be getting right so that's why there's still you know there's still people who are poor and lagging but even you know in, in the West and certainly the United States, poor people are still among the richest people who ever lived in the history of the world. I mean if you think about the history of the world, the, Mankind is 150 years old, uh, 150,000 years old. I think, by uh, the, the most modest estimate, maybe more than that, 200,000. Uh, think about how poor people have been, including the richest people in those societies up till, you know, relatively recent times. It's, yeah. it's incredible. People don't appreciate that either. And world poverty, uh, you know, uh, absolute poverty, whatever the UN calls it. You know, has fallen by half in the last 20 years. People don't appreciate that. That's because of uh, global trade. Now, I'm not endorsing globalization, that brand name, because there's a lot of bad stuff, including intellectual property rules that the U.S. often forces on other countries. But nevertheless, worldwide trade, which means worldwide division of labor, has brought the price of things down and made them much more abundant to the point where in the last 20 years or so, absolute poverty has fallen by half. I mean, that's, that's incredible.
0: Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. Now,
1: that's not not because of the government. That's not because of welfare. It's because of of Mark. You know, Adam Smith said that the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market, which is true, right? The fewer people you have, the less the less the division of labor can be developed, right, right, right. There's just too few people. That's why a self-sufficient family is never going to be rich. I mean, not even not even uh, comfortable. I mean, they may have a subsistence that they can uh, you know live on, but it, there's going to be limits because you only have a few hands. If, imagine if the whole world's involved in the marketplace, then you get this really elaborate division of labor, which brings down costs and prices and makes things more and more abundant all the time
0: right yeah
1: for the most vulnerable people
0: right and i think that the the more freed a market is that it it seems to me it would be more of a gig economy i I could be wrong but i think there would be more entrepreneurship there would be more self-employed uh people it just it just seems like that's how it would go and so that we're running I think it would
1: be lower, it would lower the cost of those things. So therefore, you would get more of it, how much you know, I'm not in the position to predict, right? Maybe yeah. there'd be much less wage labor.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, if, that's if we, kind of the way i look at the it.
1: barriers. And what wage labor remained would be much more attractive. And what and what wage labor remained, however much was left. And you know, I don't know, maybe it'd be a lot, maybe it'd be a little, but however much was left, would still be more attractive to the people who were wage you know wage workers because for one thing they have more clout because if you can quit the job and start a business doesn't have to be a big business to so start a business that you can live on yeah. then you have clout with your employer you can sing that old song to him take this job and shove it yeah but right. if the barriers to self employment or small scale neighborhood enterprise with your neighbors your friends If if the costs of that are are, uh, high because of taxes and all kinds of other things, IP, all the things we mentioned, Mm -hmm. licensing, uh, if the costs are high, then you can't readily say to your boss without notice, I'm out of here. Because you're out of here, okay, what do I do then? Uh, And also having your health insurance linked to your employer is another tether that uh, prevents, you know, it, it impedes or prevents mobility, where people would move, except, oh, my gosh, I'll be giving up all those health benefits. That's a very bad thing. It was a very bad thing that you that, that came about with a lot of government intervention yeah. behind it.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Why would you get your, why get health insurance from an uh, employer? It makes no sense. You don't get life insurance from your employer. You don't get car insurance from your employer. Why mm-hmm. do you get, you know, you know, why do you, you don't get uh, house insurance or you know uh, home uh, renters insurance from your employer. Why do you get health insurance?
2: Yeah.
1: Well, because the IRS, IRS made a decision when there was wage and price controls in World War II. They made a decision that if employers give and they couldn't raise wages to attract employees, they offer them health benefits instead. And the IRS said, "Okay, we won't count that as mm-hmm. as uh, as income. We won't tax it." So we're living with that legacy. Yeah price controls and yet it tethers people to jobs
0: yeah it, reduces it does mobility i mean that's how, bad how mobility
1: by government that's that's bad
0: how expensive is it to to pay for cobra so you get while you're in between jobs yeah. or, or or until your next job right begins to pick up your health insurance it's you know it's, it's insane it's an insane amount of money
1: before world war before Before World War II, people got health insurance through mutual aid societies, not through their employer, but through lodges and were known as mutual aid societies, friendly societies, they called them in England. And these were not companies. In other words, these were owned by the members, right? It was a mutual aid society. It was mutual in both senses. Mm. People helping each other, but also they all owned it. It was like, in a way, a co-op. And they got, a lot of them would employ doctors general practitioners. So when you were a member, you and your family had access to this GP. And there was other forms, if you got sick, you could draw benefits from your mutual aid society to tidy over till you were well. Uh, It was kind of it was insurance, but it wasn't commercial insurance. there was commercial insurance too. right wealthy people didn't need mutual aid societies; they (laughs) had the money to have insurance or to pay out of pocket if they got sick or something like that. It, It was working people who flocked to mutual aid societies. Yeah. And David Beto, a very good historian, has a book called From Mutual Aid to the Welfare State, which is a history of mutual aid societies in the United States, and it's definitely worth reading. He's a very good um, historian, and he pays attention to stuff like this, and he's done this entire book. It's been around a while now. I guess it came out in the 80s, probably, huh. on this history of mutual aid societies, which people didn't know about, and especially what they called Lodge doctors. The, the Lodge would employ a doctor. He'd mm-hmm. be under an annual contract. And then you as a member and your families had access to this doctor when you needed GP services. Right. Uh, guess who was against this? The medical societies. Because even though these were doctors, these were real doctors, they didn't like that they were going into this innovative way of, of uh, this kind of maverick form of practice. And they thought, hey, you're going to drive the price down, of, of our, you know, you're drive our incomes down. Right. Uh, and so they didn't like it and they tried to smash them. They tried to get them to lose their privileges at hospitals. and They put them down as being – that became an insult. He's a lodge hmm. doctor. He can't just open up a practice. <coughs> he's not good enough, so he's a lodge doctor. It was just a smear, but it was anti-competitive. This is before – even before medical licensing came in. Well, you know, uh, the, there's the, – the, a... in...
0: oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: I was going to say, the incumbents don't like innovation. Yeah. In forms of competition and in, and in products. And mm-hmm. they will when the state's available, they'll turn to the state to stifle it. we got to make sure the state's not available for those kinds of uh, activities.
0: I was just going to point out that this, is, this, this idea is actually kind of recycling right now. I did a, a podcast a few months ago with an attorney friend of mine um, out, of, out of Fort Worth. Mm -hmm. about uh private membership associations and so what's happening is because like let's say i live right at the border of louisiana and texas and let's say there's a doctor here in the beaumont area that that um people in Louisiana near the border want to utilize. He's not allowed to accept their insurance from Louisiana. So what, he's, what these uh, doctors have started doing is they've started these sign-up programs, these membership programs, to where these people from um, other states can come, pay like $50 a month, and they have full access to their care instead of going through an insurance yeah. company. And so there's this kind of back door. It's, it's
1: worth, yeah. People will find innovations that way, mm-hmm. right? Until then, until some law gets passed to stop that. Uh, we should mention that in the. Let's mention the pandemic for a moment. We should note that uh, a whole slew of regulations, both medical and otherwise, have been waived since the the pandemic hit, because. Yep. People have realized that they were barriers to responding to the pandemic. These were all regulations which when they were put in place before the pandemic would have you would have been told these were all common sense regulations. These are we need these, these are very important. And what happened when this emergency hit? They were struck with I mean, sanity, and they removed them. Now, unfortunately, it was only temporary, I'm sure, because once this is all over, if it ever ends, I'll bet they're going to restore some of that stuff. So, so we got to keep saying, wait a second. You took it off during an emergency. What do you want to put it back on for? <laughs> yeah. Clearly, these, were, these, were ba- these were bad ideas, like telemedicine,
2: yeah.
1: you know, now being allowed or practicing across state lines, you know, licensing. <laughs> Who's, uh, in, all, in all kinds of things, licensing is a state thing, which means if you have a license in one state, you can't necessarily practice in another state. Well, you I mean, just Madison something else.
0: We saw it as simple as who's allowed to make masks. You know, I'm like. Yeah, yeah
1: just, that's right. You know, that's right.
0: So, and I mean. So,
1: that we can't let people forget that because once this is over, you know how the memory is very short. Right. And there'll be people who want those things restored because it benefits them. The people that right. got them in the first place will want them back. And the rest of us have to be screening. No, don't put those things back. You already acknowledged there were bad ideas. What do we need at normal times if it, were, if it was harming and these were harming us in this, uh, during the emergency?
0: So, right. Well, we're at an hour. From this. We're at an hour. I want to wrap up with you, but I wanted to ask you one more question. Sure. Um, yeah. Please. As far as strategy goes, what do you make of the agorist strategy whenever uh, it comes to introducing the the idea of a freed market to to uh, the the population?
1: Well, I, I I understand it as people looking for opportunities to get around uh, the government barriers, the privileges, mm-hmm. and, and produce for the market. Goods and services uh, f- free de facto, not de jure, but free mm-hmm. of, of all the uh, obstacles that the government has thrown in the way in order to privilege somebody else. Right. Uh, that's a great strategy, and I hope people are constantly looking for that. Uh, we call it the black market or the gray market, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and it doesn't have to mean that it's uh, you know quote a harmful substance. People could be in a gray market. Right. Making something that you find on the shelf at the store, but just cheaper and maybe better, uh, especially as we said with the, cost, with the cost of technology coming down, mm-hmm. thanks to computers and the Internet and all this stuff, uh, single you know, individuals, or maybe a couple of people together can be doing what uh, it took a big you know big companies uh, to, to do, not right. that long ago.. Right. Uh, if you can get around IP and find a way to get around IP and these other obstacles. Uh, I'm for that right don't let's not wait until we get these things repealed because unfortunately that may still be a long time off so people (laughs) are out there looking for a way to say I'm going to pretend those things don't exist more power to power in a good sense economic power
0: right right okay well I I just kind of wanted to get your opinion because to me the agorist strategy really ties in with the ideas of the freed market like it's just yep it it, it seems to me like it's just taking the ideas and putting it into action. And, and you're just, and exactly. that's all there is to it. Okay. Well, tell us about your book, man. I really, uh, we didn't talk a lot about it. We didn't mention it, but I want you to tell us all about it before we sure. get off where it can be found and all that good jazz.
1: Well, the name is, uh, you can search my name on Amazon. Uh, you also get it at the Libertarian Institute. Okay which is libertarianinstitute.org, where I'm uh, executive editor. It's called What Social Animals Owe To Each Other. It's available in paperback and, uh, and Kindle. And uh, I hope people will read it and, and give it to their left-wing friends, but give it to the right-wing front friends, too. I think, it, I think everybody, can, I hope, can learn from it. It's not directed at one group of people. Uh, it's, an, it's an attempt to make a, a theoretical, moral, and aesthetic case for markets. Markets are beautiful. And that that's my that, that's one of the chapters actually. Markets are beautiful. Well, they are because it, it, it's social cooperation. It's social cooperation, and we are social cooperative animals. And so the market is. That doesn't mean everything is the market, right? Families right. are not the market. Right. Friendships. So it doesn't mean it doesn't mean the market is every aspect of life. But it's a very important aspect of life. Right. And if we take it away, we're in very bad straits.
0: Yeah. And, and one of the things I actually mentioned this to my wife last night when I was reading it, uh, I I looked over at her and I just kind of chuckled. I said, Sheldon is one of my favorite thinkers for this reason. I was like, because it, whenever he's, whenever he's breaking down these subjects as philosophical as he wants to get. He's able to just dissect it and just peel the onion apart and get you right down into the core of it. So you're you're take you take these take me on a journey through the entire thought process, and I really appreciate
1: well, that. Nice well, to nice to hear that because I do. That's what I aim to do. So it's always gratifying to hear. Yeah, have a, have somebody tell me that uh, I've carried out my mission because that's yeah. what I do try to do.
0: Yeah, I mean you make it so you nice, make thank it you. Thank you for that yeah well, you make it super accessible, well, thanks. you know I'm just a dumb truck driver, so I can read it and understand anybody can so.
1: <laughs> well I think a whole lot of people could read can read that book and uh, and and get and get something out of it maybe can come across an insight that they didn't think of before. Yeah. I don't really claim any huge originality, but I hope my exposition of it is is clear enough and i try to break it down you know first i'm explaining it to myself mm-hmm. and then at the same time then i pass it on to other people so right. uh i don't think anybody ought to be able to yeah get something out of it even even advanced readers so uh, uh by the way i i really seriously doubt that if you and other truck drivers are dumb but i'm sure i know you were just being funny
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I do that sometimes
1: <laughs> that's okay
0: all right, man. Well, I, I love will...
1: people a whole lot smarter than I am.
0: <laughs> I really appreciate your time. So, so if,
1: I can get what's in, if I can get what's in that book, plenty of people can.
0: <laughs> there I you go. <laughs> Thank you I very appreciate
1: you inviting me on the, on the podcast.
0: Well, hopefully we can do it again. Please. You know All where right. to find me. All right, buddy. We'll talk soon.
2: Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye.